as we do this se- uh, series on Revelation, again, if you have any questions at all, you can email us info at mercyroad.cc. And I got one more week to address it. So I'm going to warn you ahead of time, if you need to stretch out a little bit, we are going to get into the nitty gritty details of Revelation. You're going to drink from the fire hose. It's going to be overwhelming. You're going to need to get your pen ready to take some notes or go back and watch this online later. But our goal is to help us prepare for the return of Christ. And as I get into the details of this, you know, I want to do a, just a little quick synopsis of the first seven chapters in case you missed some of this. We went through five of them. Chapter one, John has a revelation and writes that revelation, not revelations, there's only one. He writes it down in a form of a genre of writing known as apocalyptic literature that uses vivid imagery to communicate real things. And then in chapter two and three, he tells them he's writing this to address the seven churches that existed in the Roman Empire. And to each one of those seven churches, he says, for those disciples of Jesus who don't give up, who prepare, who live out their faith, to those who are victorious, it says, or to those who overcome, your name will be written in the Lamb's book of life. You will have eternal salvation and be with him forever. And then in chapter four and five, you get into the throne room of God as they're worshiping holy, holy, holy as the Lord God Almighty was and is and is to come. And then we get into chapter six and seven, which we uh, aren't gonna get into in detail where it talks about the six of seven seals that are gonna be broken leading up to the return of Christ. And the seventh one is what we're gonna study this morning. And then in chapter seven, you learn about the 144,000 and the great multitude which I actually wrote a paper in seminary about that, but essentially, you know, 12 times 12 is 144, a perfected number talking about all those who come to know Jesus will be there in the end. That if you have received the grace and the mercy of Christ, believed and repented of your sin, that all of those who are meant to come to the Lord will have come to him by that point. Now, interesting enough, this is why biblical interpretation matters. Uh, Jehovah's Witnesses, which I'm... uh, you know, they literally looked at that passage for years, and I believe still do, that it's a literal 144,000 people get in. Ironically, there were, when I last checked, over 5 million Jehovah's Witnesses in the United States. Now, I'm not saying that to mock anybody. I'm just saying, like, looking at Scripture and understanding, you could see how some of these secondary details can become big deal, big deals. And so, as we get into chapter 8 now, I want to look at what happens when Christ returns and God's wrath is poured out on the world. So it's going to get real. And how many of you, you mainly think of the Bible as like a battle between God and Satan, and Satan does all the bad stuff. And we fail to see sometimes that it's actually God's wrath at the end of times that ends all things. And so I want to talk about why that is. In fact, I wanted to do a whole sermon on this, but we didn't have time to do it, and the staff told me there were more important things. But I don't feel like in American culture, we really talk about that because we're only familiar with like turn and burn scary stuff that people are abusing us emotionally. And that's not the heart of what I want to do, but I want to talk about the real understanding of God's wrath in Scripture. But you ready to study God's Word together, church, as we get to chapter 8? Come on. It says this in verse 1. When he opened the seventh seal, so chapter 6, they get through the first six seals, Chapter eight, the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour because they were in awe and reverence, a silent moment of what was about to occur. 
after all this time, the end of all things is going to happen. And it says in the second half of that verse, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour, and I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. Another angel who had a golden censer came and stood at the altar. He was given much incense to offer with the prayers of God's people on the golden altar in front of the throne. So these seven angels are shown how to come and to worship God. And I want to talk about God's reverence to start because it will make more sense. The book of Revelation makes way more sense when you understand the holiness, the righteousness, the reverence that God deserves. That, that actually in the Old Testament, if you're like, what's a censer and incense? Like, because we don't use that, right? Like in the Old Testament, that was the way that they worship God. And I was actually reading uh, Numbers this last week. If you're out for a good time, go read the book of Numbers. And I got to the part where like the three guys uh, worship God in a way that they're not supposed to. He had told them they had to be descendants of Aaron and they weren't, but they went and worshiped him with censors anyway. And they got these other 250 people to do it and all of them die. And then they actually take the metal from those censors and they melt it down and they make a covering for the altar with it so that the Jewish community would remember from then on out that you better listen about how to approach God. He is not some impotent, wimpy, apathetic being. He is all-knowing and all-powerful and full of grace and love. And he says that there can be no unholy thing in his presence. See, we take for granted that we're on the other side of the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus because Jesus gave his life for us. He atoned for our sin and wrongdoing, paid the price for any mistake that you've done. You don't have to live in shame and guilt of the decisions of your past if you receive the grace and forgiveness of Christ. And he didn't just die on the cross. He resurrected from the grave on the third day, overcoming death itself, that we have victory over death. Christus Victor, that anybody who knows Christ lives eternally. And we are empowered by the Holy Spirit then to live out our mission in this world until he comes back or until we pass. It's the hope that we have in Christ. And so when these angels are coming to worship with these censors, they're demonstrating this very holy act that in the Old Testament, the humans got wrong. And I think that's really important because at the end, I'm going to come back to God's compassionate pursuit of humanity throughout the entire Bible, including in the book of Revelation. But know that he is powerful because look what happens. Verse four, the smoke of the incense together with the prayers of God's people went up before God from the angel's hand. Then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar. It's not Satan that does this and hurled it on the earth. And there came peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning and an earthquake that the power of God is seen. And the end of the world as we've known it is about to occur. And what we refer to as the tribulation and these plagues break out and the world will never be the same again when that occurs. And I want to talk about why God in his compassion would do such a thing. And then I want you to ask yourself the question, when you read about this heavy stuff this morning about the return of Christ, a simple question, are you ready? Are you prepared? for when Christ does return. That's what I want to ask this morning. Will you pray with me? God, uh, we just acknowledge your presence here right now. Uh, people came in this morning who maybe haven't been in a space like this in a really long time. Or maybe they've been a part of this church for a long time and, and just need to hear a fresh wind 
through your word of how to live our lives and be prepared for your return, Jesus. Speak to us. God, I'm not perfect. So take any word I would say away that's not of you and help us to only hear what you have to say through your word. Pierce our souls this morning. We surrender this time to you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. Amen. Do we have any procrastinators in the room? Come on. You guys all came to the 1130 service, so put your hand up. Let's go. Uh, man, as a, as a kid, I was totally a procrastinator, put things off. I, and my dad, he had like a, it just drove him nuts. He, he, he did not like it at all. And so in high school, he would go to special efforts every morning just to make it sure that I made it to school on time. And as a kid, I always wondered, why is my dad so hard? Why is he? And then I became a dad. And I swear, part of being a father is waiting on your kids to get ready for 99% of your life. It's like, at least it's in the back. It's like every time we get ready, hey, you got to put your shoes on, put your shoes. No, you got to put the socks on first. I don't want to smell your feet anymore, Jeff. Put the socks on, then the shoes on. And then you got to brush your teeth. It's that day of the week. It's time to brush them. You got to get ready, get in there. We got to go, go, go. And then parents, you know this too. If a child has a sporting event and you tell him the day and the time to be ready, without fail, 0% chance that they will be ready at that moment in time. Every single time, you got to put the things on. You got to get ready. It drives me nuts now. And as a dad, I'm like, why can't you just get it? And then I think about what I was like to my dad. I was reflecting on that and what my heavenly father, your heavenly father, probably thinks about us sometimes. How we spend our life doing things that aren't going to matter for eternity. Rather than being ready and prepared for the return of Christ or until the last moment, the last breath we get on this planet, using every moment to seize the day to live for Christ. You know, uh, this last 24 hours has been heavy for a number of people in our church. An amazing woman of God, a stalwart of faith, Laura Menner, who's been a part of our church family, passed away last Monday after a two and a half year, really three and a half year battle. She didn't know she had cancer for about a year. And after that long faithful battle, She went to be with the Lord. And her father said this so well yesterday at the funeral, just that he believed now that while they wanted her physically healed, that her mission and purpose was to demonstrate to many of us how to live with faith while going through such a tragic form of cancer. And that she got to demonstrate to us really how to seize every moment to live for something that matters, preparing for when we would have our last breath. And so I got to tell you this morning, man, it has been an emotional ride for us this week. And I know I've been reflecting a lot on that, about why we do all of this, but why the church is important, about why we do March for a Million that's tonight at six o'clock, why we do these things, why we do student ministry, why we do kids ministry, why we pray for kids up here on the stage, why we baptize people, why we're trying to help meet physical needs in the community and proclaim the gospel today. Because one day all will be said and done and we'll only be able to claim what we did with the life that we had been given. And I believe Laura would want us today to reflect on this and say there will be a time when either Jesus returns or we will breathe our last breath and we won't be able to do any, any, a couple of things anymore. One, one thing we won't be able to do in heaven, we will no longer be able to sin. <laughs> there will be no more pain and crying and, and suffering, guilt and shame. But two, we will no longer be able to tell people about Jesus. 
everyone will already know. And those who had rejected will experience that second death that we described a couple of weeks ago. And so I believe what we're talking about matters. And in Revelation 8, when it breaks that seventh seal and, and these angels begin to bring on these seven plagues that are going to occur, I, I want to tell you that God's wrath in this moment is destroying the earth, not because he hates humanity, but because he loves humanity and he's had enough. When he sees the wars around the world in Ukraine today, when he sees the pain and suffering, and next week we'll be talking about the signs of the end times, he finally says, the last believer has come to know the Lord and enough is enough. And I share that because look at what happens here at this moment in verse six of Revelation eight. Then the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to sound them. The first angel sounded his trumpet and there came hail and fire mixed with blood. And it was hurled down on the earth. A third of the earth was burned up. A third of the trees were burned up and all the green grass was burned up. The second angel sounded his trumpet and something like a huge mountain, all ablaze, was thrown into the sea. A third of the sea turned to blood. A third of the living creatures in the sea died and a third of the ships were destroyed. The third angel sounded his trumpet and a great star blazing like a torch fell from the sky on a third of the rivers and on the, the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters turned bitter and many people died from the waters that had become bitter. The fourth angel sounded his trumpet and a third of the sun was struck, a third of the moon and a third of the stars so that a third of them turned dark. A third of the day without, was without light and also a third of the night as I watched, and I heard an angel that was flying in midair call out in a loud voice, woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth because of the trumpet blast about to be sounded by the other three angels. And there are a pause there before the final three angels. And we won't get into the great tribulation and the final three angels and the plagues that are released in that moment, but you get the concept here. These plagues are released. The wrath of God has, has come. And the tribulation, the end times has begun, which brings up all kinds of questions, doesn't it? Like, are we still going to be alive? What's going to happen? What's it going to be like? How long is it going to last? What's, what's going to occur? And, and Davey broke down five different versions of different timelines that could occur last week. And there's even more than that. And I'm going to give you kind of my take on it this morning. And we said at the beginning of this, we can agree to disagree on secondary theological issues. Amen. But I want to tell you, I want to give you some details because I want you to get you to get you thinking to go search scripture on your own and figure out how to prepare and be ready for the return of Christ and what that even means. And so we're going to talk about the resurrection and the rapture. At the end of this, some of you just may just maybe your clothes here and you're gone. We don't know what's going to happen here. Uh, we're going to talk about the rapture and that concept of it. I don't believe it's going to be like we think we read about or see about in the movies and I'll address that, but there will be a time when everything ends and there will be a resurrection and those who are still alive will be caught up to be with the Lord. I'm going to conclude with that, but first we got to get into, number one, the tribulation. This is when all this wrath is poured out, the hardships begin, and this timeline begins to occur. In this case, the seventh seal is when the seventh angels blow the trumpets, or assume there are seven seals. There's also seven trumpets. There's also seven bowls, all talking about the wrath of God occurring in Revelation. Now, we only have four weeks for the entire book of Revelation. We could literally teach this for the rest of our lives and not get into every single detail. But I'm gonna do my best to quickly summarize a couple of questions and then get into the timeline of what this might look like. 
And the first question I want to ask when we're talking about the tribulation, because a number of you, I know you have this question. Uh, somebody wrote this to us. When we read that we will not be hurt by the second death, if you remember a couple of weeks ago, we die physically the first death. The second death is we die eternally, that our souls go uh, to be separated from God forever in the place we know as, as hell to eternal damnation. Uh, does that mean that when Christ returns, for those of us who are alive during that time, Will we be raptured before the scary stuff happens? How many of you hope so? <laughs> well, we'll get into that. Uh, first of all, I want to sh share that for 2,000 years, people thought during their day and time that this would occur. We don't know the day or time, and I'll end with that today. We don't know the day or time or the return of Christ. There's a good chance it could be thousands of years from now. What we do know is that Christ could return at any moment. And again, we are to be prepared and ready for his return. And what, how do we prepare and get ready? I'm going to address that. But what this is referring to, or this question is referring to, is the fear about when the tribulation occurs, will we still be around? I'm going to give you some different versions of what that timeline could look like based off of Revelation and what Davy shared last week. In other words, in three minutes, I'm going to summarize all of the book of Revelation. Come on now, this isn't easy. Here's, here's, so, number one, there's going to be a tribulation. It's seven years long in Scripture. And then a thousand-year reign of Christ is what the premillennial position is like, and I'll get to that in just a moment. But let's talk about the timeline for just a second. The timeline. Uh, here are the first historical view of the timeline. Now, I'm not going to talk about one version known as the Preterist version that was developed a couple hundred years ago that has great, uh, uh, that you could actually be either of these two and be a Preterist. But the amillennial position doesn't believe that there is a literal thousand-year reign of Christ. It just Jesus returns and puts the world right. And in Revelation, what you get is seven different times it repeatedly through apocalyptic literature using this vivid imagery to talk about the return of Christ, that he just kind of returns. And we're going through the tribulation currently. He returns and it's over. That's it. And so if some of you are really nervous, maybe you're an millennial today. That is a very historical position that Christians have had for 2,000 years. And you're like, I like the simplicity of that. And, and I'm going to be an millennial if that's you. Uh, I'm, I'm not, even though my professor in seminary was. But it is a very historical understanding of Revelation. The second one, which I am, is the premillennial position that there is a seven-year tribulation, the thousand-year reign of Christ, and the end of all things. You say, well, why are you a premillennialist instead of the other amillennialists? Two reasons. Number one, isn't the first version of the amillennialist super boring? Anybody? Come on. It's just, it's a little boring. But secondly, and more importantly for me, there's a lot of details that both Revelation and Daniel and 1 Thessalonians and other places give that I think leads to more of the timeline that I'm going to share with you now. But either of these are very historically accurate, and we don't, truth is, we don't know, right? And so we can agree to disagree. The important thing is Jesus returns, and he's the only means to eternal salvation. But here's the timeline. It's going to be on a lot of different slides. So if you're going to take notes, you're going to have to do it really fast. Those attending online, you could actually rewind and like write it down. But if you try and write this down right fast, 
And here is uh, the, what the timeline might look like. Seven-year tribulation begins with the Antichrist. You learn about the beasts in Revelation chapter 13. There are two beasts. It's a reference to Jewish mythology where you have the, the Leviathan in the water and you have the behemoth on land. And the ones, in this case, the Antichrist and the other one is the prophet, but we're moving on. Then you have the covenant with Israel that lasts seven years. And, and in the first three and a half years in Daniel chapter nine, verse 27, it says he will co confirm a covenant with many for one seven. Talking about seven years. In the middle of the seven, so halfway through, what's half of seven? Three and a half. Okay, see, we can do math. He will put an end to the sacrifice and offering. And at the temple, he will set up the abomination that causes desolation until the end that is decreed is poured out on him. What is the abomination that causes desolation? Well, every Jewish person in the first century knew this was a reference to when the Romans invaded hundreds of years earlier and they sacked the temple and they sacrificed the pig there on the altar just to desecrate the Jewish temple. And so it's talking about that the Antichrist will do a similar thing halfway through the seven years of this tribulation that will happen. And this tribulation is when a lot of bad stuff is occurring and the Antichrist is beginning to take things over. But then skip ahead to Revelation chapter 11, verse 1 to 3. It also mentions this three and a half years. I was given a reed like a measuring rod and was told, go and measure the temple of God and the altar with its worshipers. But exclude the outer court. Do not measure it because it has been given to the Gentiles. It will trample on the holy city for 42 months. Okay, math majors out there. How many months in a year? 12 months. So three years is 36 months. See, multiplication. Uh, half a year is six months. 36 plus six. 42 months. So three and a half years again, they will trample the holy city and I will appoint my two witnesses and they will prophesy for 1,260 days, do the math there, clothed in sackcloth. So I am what they would refer to a premillennialist with a mid-tribulation viewpoint. You're like, that's a lot of big words. What that means is that the Christians will go through the first three and a half years of the tribulation, but not the great tribulation after in the second three and a half years. And that Christ uh, will return and the resurrection will happen and we'll get into all that. But here's more of the timeline that uh, the Antichrist, they, they kill two witnesses that God had appointed. Then the abomination that we talked about caused, that causes desolation at the temple at three and a half years of the great tribulation. The last battle then on Jerusalem at Armageddon will occur. Jesus returns and destroys the Antichrist and the army and casts them into the lake of fire, Revelation 19. Satan is bound in the abyss for 1,000 years, Revelation 20. Satan released and defeated to eternity in the lake of fire. And then finally, the new heaven and the new earth in Revelation 21. And there's the entire book of Revelation. Come on. <laughs> yeah, it's a lot. And so... What I need to encourage you to do is to dive deep. And, and if you need resources, email us. And if you've got specific questions, that we can give you good theological resources from different perspectives rather than just Googling it and finding out what someone in their basement wrote. Okay? So here's what I want to share with you, though, because most of our concepts about what this timeline might look like usually doesn't come from scripture. It comes from things that we've watched or read. So like when I was a, a kid, man, I remember the Stephen King books, The Stand. Anybody remember those? You got to be old enough. Two of us. That's great. Three. Okay. They even made like a TV series or a movie on that. And then uh, another version, you guys all know this one. How many of you read the books? Yeah. Okay. A lot of you probably have read those. Or this is more my personal favorite. This one right here. They... <laughs> 
Nicolas Cage made a remake of the Left Behind uh, movie, if you didn't know that. You gotta love Nick Cage, come on. So in all of those, they give us a great understanding of what it could look like, but a lot of times it's dramatized. So I encourage you, go back into scripture and that timeline they just described, figure out what scripture actually says and what it does not say, and know that there can be different views and opinions on some of these things. Because finally, number three, it leads then, so we have the tribulation, this timeline occurs of the seven years of the thousand year reign of Christ and then the eternal damnation of Satan and the new heaven and the new earth that we'll look at next week in Revelation 21. But I wanna talk about the resurrection and the rapture. Man, we're getting everything this morning, come on. And, and actually, to get this understanding, you need to go back to, to uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter one. 1 Thessalonians chapter one. Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. See, already in the first century, when Paul's writing to the church in Thessalonica, in one of his earliest letters, they're already concerned that some of their family and friends have died before Jesus returns. Those who have fallen asleep to be with the Lord, it means they died. And they're like, are they going to get to be with us in heaven? What? Because they missed, they missed out. And actually, Jesus says that they will get resurrected and be with him first. So he goes on in verse 14. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. In fact, verse 16, for the Lord himself will come down from heaven and with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God, so we're kind of getting into the imagery, and the dead in Christ will rise first. So here's the deal. I believe that when Laura passed away, that we can have hope, as it reads there, that in that moment when Jesus was on the cross, he turns to the thief of that that was also on the cross, and he says that today you'll be with me in paradise. So that I believe that Laura right now is with Jesus, her Savior. That's the hope that we have as followers of Jesus. But the physical resurrection of our perfected bodies does not occur until Jesus' return and the second coming of Christ. And so it says the dead in Christ will rise first. But then look what it says. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be what? Caught up together. The word caught up together there, that phrase in the, in, in the Greek, it literally means that you're caught up to be with the Lord. But in the Latin Vulgate, it's the word rapturo, which is where we get the word rapture from. And so the idea that like all of a sudden your friend's sitting there, they're gone and their clothes are laying there, that we don't know that it's going to be, you know, magical like that. But we do know that much like when Jesus ascended to the right hand of the Father, that you're going to be caught up to be with the Lord and you won't endure the end of all things like those who don't know Jesus do. And so when they're caught up together with the Lord in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so they will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. I want, I want to sit on that because I didn't do this at the other services to encourage one another with these words. The question that we asked earlier about the, do we have to live through the scary stuff? I want you to understand the hope that we have in Christ. 
that you don't have to wait for the tribulation to endure hardships and hard things and troubles in this world. Jesus told us, you will have trouble. We have cancer. We have wars in Ukraine. We have heartache and heartbreak and and people angry, and, and we have racism, and we have all kinds of terrible things that can happen in our culture. And, and, and the, the good news of Jesus Christ is that one day there will be no more pain and suffering. The old order will pass away, and all things will be made new. There will be more and more tears, as we'll talk about in a moment. But until then, the kingdom of heaven can be ushered in today as we receive and believe in the faith in Jesus Christ and allow him to change us internally to live differently because of it. So that the resurrection begins now, that you can become a new creation, the old could be gone, the new could come. And one day there will be a physical resurrection that will occur when Jesus returns. So it begs the question, well, when's all this going to happen when he returns? You know, the truth is we have no idea, right? Uh, My wife has a great idea. I actually really love this one. Jesus was crucified on the last day of the Passover when the Passover lamb was slain. And so the last of the Jewish festivals in the Jewish calendar was the Festival of Tabernacles. So the the last and greatest day of that festival, what if he returned on that day? Wouldn't that be super cool? But the truth is we don't know. And they tell us that very clearly in scripture, Matthew 24, 36. But about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the son, but only the father. We don't know the day, we don't know the time, but we do know the seasons. And we're gonna talk about that next week. The increased warfare, you're gonna see an increased uh, disease and other things occurring, it says in scripture. We'll talk about the signs and the birth pangs that are coming. And we don't know if we're thousands of years away or thousands of days away, right? But every breath that we get is to seize the moment to live for the Lord because we don't know how many we're going to get this side of heaven and we don't know when he's going to return. And so our goal is to prepare. So how do you prepare? How do you prepare? What did Revelation 2 and 3 say? That's how we started the whole letter, writing this revelation down. How do you prepare? That's really easy. You go buy 40 acres, build a really big bunker, (laughs) stock up on food and guns, and you're good, right? Now, I want to tell you that is not biblically how you prepare for the return of Christ. Because our goal as Christians is not to prevent the end times. You ever thought about that? It's actually Jesus, or it's God, the Father, that ends all things. It is his wrath. Why? Our job isn't to prevent it, so we don't prepare by being ready to fight back. We prepare spiritually. That we say no matter what comes, the hardship now or the tribulation to come or whether we're taken to be with the Lord before the tribulation even occurs, whatever breath we have on this planet is to love the Lord our God with our heart, soul, mind, and being and love our neighbor as herself, to surrender our will to his will and say, God, use me. The way you approach him is to be obedient to what he has asked you to do. In the book of Numbers, they didn't do that. And they messed around with the holiness of the power and the, the almighty nature of God. And your goal is not to escape reality by avoiding all of the things or building a bunker and stocking up to prepare for it. It's, it's not to go and avoid things with drugs and alcohol or, or turn to Netflix or your, your apps on your phone to avoid life. Our goal is to prepare every day to draw closer to him. And as we've been pr- praying and fasting for 21 days and we're gonna go downtown to, in the circle center, I don't know if somebody's gonna get baptized down there in the horse trough, it's gonna be a blast. 
We have over 100 churches coming. There are going to be thousands of people there. We can't wait to see what the Lord does as we pray and we worship and we ask that God would make a million disciples for Christ by the year 2050 because we believe in the power of Almighty God that he still moves and works and one day he's going to return and he's going to put the world right and we don't have to fear that. Why? Because there are two constants throughout scripture. Number one, he is passionately pursuing you. Passionately pursuing you. Think about it. it. When he created humankind, everything was perfect. We ruined it. But he didn't give up on us. He said to the Israelites, you'll be my people. I'll be your God. Your descendants will be as the, the sand on the seashore. Thousands upon thousands upon thousands. And yet they didn't listen to him and they rebelled. And so he sent the prophets. They didn't listen to the prophets. So he sent his only son, Emmanuel, God with us, who was crucified. And when his body is, to- uh, is given on the cross, in that moment, you see, for all of human history, God had wanted to be with his creation. He was there in the Garden of Eden. He walked with Adam. When they actually were in the wilderness all those years, they carried a box with the Ten Commandments and his presence resided there. It would come up in a cloud of smoke because he wanted to be with them. They built him a tabernacle, which is a big tent or a dwelling place because they put the Holy of Holies in the center there because God dwelled with them. He built a physical building then one day, the Bethel, the house of God, the temple, so that he could permanently have a building to live with them. And when Jesus is crucified on the cross, the temple curtain is torn in two because his presence is no longer in a building, in a box. It's now in us as believers. That anybody who believes and receives the grace and forgiveness of God repents of their sin and turns and surrenders their life, that you could be made new and the Spirit of God is now given to you. Your body is the physical temple of the Holy Spirit. You see, we wait for his return by preparing spiritually to be used by God because he is passionately pursuing us. And once we find him, we are called to passionately pursue others. Why? Because number two, in the end, evil is defeated. Why is it God's wrath that destroys everything? Because he's had enough of the pain enough of the war, enough of cancer, enough of the suffering. And he's saying, it's done. But why didn't he already do it already? Why doesn't he do it now? Because he's waiting in his compassion for the last person, the last one of us that will give our life to Jesus and surrender to him. That's why in Revelation 21 verse 4, it says, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. The old order of things will have passed away. And all we can ask ourselves now, are we ready? Are we prepared? Are we living in fear and trying to avoid the end times rather than saying, God, use me now while I still can be used? And some of you, I'm gonna be honest, some of us, you are just wasting your life. You've drank more alcohol in the last year than you did the previous 10. You've rebelled against God because of the broken addictive habits in your life, because of the broken relationships and your sexual habits. Well, I'm being real. I didn't share this at the other services, but I believe that some of us in this room, if we knew Jesus was going to return tomorrow, our lives would look very differently. And I just want to plead with you with the compassion of God to return to him because he's not going to judge you. The prodigal son came home. He wrapped his loving arms around him, put a robe on his back, a ring on his finger because his son was lost and now he's found. That's what he does when you come home to him. Let's pray. Jesus... God, I just, I think of Laura, God. I think how she's with you now, how you used her life, that she was faithful to the end. And I want to talk to some of us as Christians, God, because we just want to kind of coast through life instead of drawing near to you, preparing spiritually by getting deep into your word and growing closer with you every day and becoming the person you created us to be. And we've got all excuses why we don't do it. 
And God, I just pray we stop making them. And this morning, if you're a Christian, to open yourself up, to live, to seize the day, to live as if every moment you're getting ready and prepared for the return of Christ. Not by building bunkers, but by reading your Bible, by going to him in prayer and sharing his gospel with others. And then I believe that there are some of you in the room, the truth is, if Jesus returned tomorrow, you'd be scared to death. You'd be scared to death because you know you have not lived for him. And you have this guilt and this shame over that, but you don't have to have that. The Bible teaches us in Romans 10, 9, if you confess Jesus with Lord, uh, the Lord of your life with your lips, that you will receive salvation. That John chapter 1, you just have to believe and receive his grace and forgiveness in your life. And so if you would like to surrender your life to the Lordship of Jesus, to repent of your sin and to turn from your ways to him, I want to give you the opportunity to do that right now. So on the count of three, if you're willing to do that, to surrender your life to him, they're going to stop putting it off and know that he's going to return. And he doesn't want you to be scared of him. He wants you to know he wants to wrap his loving arms around him. I invite you to raise your hand and we're going to pray together very simply. On the count of three, raise your hand. One, Jesus loves you. Two, he's not done with you no matter your past. Three, he asks you to fully surrender your life to him. I see the two of you over there and the person that, oh man, the couple of you in the back over there. If I'm missing anybody to my left, guys, help me over here. Okay, you can go ahead. There may have been one in the back I missed. Put your hands down. I, I think there was five people to my right over here. If I missed you, I apologize. But I want you to pray this because I think in that moment, you demonstrating you're not ashamed to do such a simple thing like raise your hand is going to serve you as you serve the Lord to come. And so pray this with me silently as I pray it out loud. God, I don't want to live in fear about your return. I want to live with joy. And so right now, I believe and receive your forgiveness and grace. I repent of anything in my life that's not of you. And I surrender my life to you as Lord. Use me, Jesus. I'm full of yours. God, we believe your angels in heaven are worshiping and celebrating. God, thank you for the life of Laura Menner. May he continue to minister to people for decades to come. We love you, Jesus, and we give you these lives and pray this in your name and all God's family said, amen.